Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in depth conversations in applied geophysics. I'm excited to welcome back Kurt Marford. He joined the podcast for our second ever episode that still remains one of the most popular episodes. For this conversation, Kurt highlights the current state of education and training in geophysics, including the value and benefits of virtual education. He shares his thoughts on the most important area of focus for geophysicists right now, why there's a need to increase your quantitative and programming skills, and offers his one piece of advice to succeed in geophysics. As with our first conversation, this one is not to be missed. Visit seg.org forward slash podcast for Kurt's full bio and links to learn more about his courses and books. Without further delay, let's join our conversation. Well, I'll ask a general question here. So, I mean, as all of us know at this point, many in-person events have had to be canceled or postponed. Classes are now in a virtual setting. In this new environment, how do you think of the value of virtual learning in general? Okay, so as an older guy, I've been a little leery of virtual learning. I like in-person. I like interacting with people. I like the kind of questions. I like seeing if they fall asleep, and then I pick on them, ask them difficult questions, put them on the spot. But things have changed. And in my case, uh, I've been teaching a class on seismic attributes since 2003. So that's 17 years. I've done two tours as a distinguished instructor short course, so the disc course. And the first one I think I did. 28 locations, and the second I did 29. So uh, I've hit most of the market that you can hit in person, but there are many, many people I'll never be able to see. For instance, there are places that would be fun for someone like to me to go to, like uh, New Zealand. There aren't enough geophysicists in New Zealand doing exploration to justify having a short course there. In contrast, other places with a lot of geoscientists, uh, I'll say Libya, and they have a civil war and they have needs to continue education, but it's simply uh, too dangerous to go to. So there's a large part of the world that as uh, instructors, we're simply not being able to address. So we've got a lot of unmet needs. And the distance is the best way to do it. You know, as the world continues to adjust to dealing with and managing the coronavirus, and I like what you just said, there's even value of these virtual courses outside of what we're dealing with in this pandemic. What role do virtual courses and more generally continuing education have in the further development of geophysicists? Right. So the coronavirus and for terms of the geophysics profession, the biggest impact is the effect of coronavirus on the price of oil. We are now in one of the downturns. There was one in North America around 2006, 2007. 1999 was a big one with a lot of mergers. I worked for Amoco. So during that year, Amoco disappeared and Mobile disappeared and Arco disappeared. El Fakiten disappeared, FINA disappeared, a lot of companies disappeared. 
And in the 1980s, a similar thing uh, before uh, you probably came of age, Andrew, but you know of Gulf Oil Company as the gas station that sell beach towels with Elvis's face on it. Okay, but Gulf Oil was a very profitable oil company, superior sun oil company. All of those disappeared. So here we are again, and this is happening. We will be using oil in the future, even with the uh, income of electric cars and so forth. In North America, the average age of a car on the street is 11 years. And in most of the world, with the exception of China, it's closer to 15 years. So that means if everybody bought only electric cars from now on, we'd still have 50% of them running 11 years from now. So uh, the oil industry is going to be here. It's going to be flat. And we need to learn how to adjust to, to the new environment. And continuing education is one way to get the skills to uh, learn what's coming next, what's down the road. As someone who has several virtual courses on SEG, you know, what do you, and you talked a little bit that about this in your first answer here, but what do you see as some additional unique benefits of shifting towards these virtual courses and lectures and events? Well, when I do classes in uh, North America, the classes tend to be two days. And taking two days out of a busy schedule is a reasonable thing to do. That's a quite reasonable thing to do, even if you have to travel to uh, the city that is being held in. In contrast, when I go overseas, because of the cost of travel, it's a five-day class. Now, a five-day class, and there are several of uh, my colleagues in the SCG and AAPG who do five-day classes internationally, a five-day class covers the material of a university semester course. So you are drinking from a fire hose, and it's hard to think about what went on during the day before the next day comes across. Then there's another more practical pattern, a problem, is that the employers, even though they're paying for the course, you're not able to react to the day in and day out uh, business problems that uh, your work group is facing. So uh, many of the employers would feel more comfortable if a five-day class were parceled out over a one-month or even a two-month period. You know, one of the things that kind of strikes me is, you know, things like whether you can access a course on computer or just a good old-fashioned book, you know, those things are still accessible. And maybe now time or people have some time to to read a little bit more than they would. You know, looking back at all of the stuff you have produced, I mean, you have two discourses, you have several books published with the SEG, all of your published papers. You know, when you kind of think back about these contributions that people can grab and read and, and take in, how do you see the value of things like that uh, at this time and even looking ahead into the future? Now, those are great publications and books. Those are great resource materials. And when a question arises, there's something you can search and, and find out an answer. In contrast, continuing education course for older people like me, okay, continuing education course is a way to learn something new that 
you know very little about. You're curious or you think, yeah, what do those people do for a living? Maybe I need to understand something about modern acquisition techniques, or maybe I need to understand something about carbonate depositional environments. Now, I wouldn't even know where to start reading other than by a textbook. Uh, so to, to get a course and uh, find out what some of the key papers are and the key concepts are, what's the limit of our, of our knowledge today, that's a, that's a really effective way of doing it. Now, there is a slight uh, change with uh, kind of the modern way of doing things. And by modern, I mean with, with the younger generation. And people are very, very busy, okay? The younger people today, the uh, emerging career professionals is what, what we call them at the SCG, so people who are a little less than 10 years out of their last uh, university degree, they tend to have families, they tend to have friends, they tend to have a life. And because of the ups and downs of the industry, they know that their employer's not going to be with them 20 years in the future, but hopefully their spouse will be and their friends will be. So they're trying to get more balance. And to get more balance, if you take uh, continuing education courses where it takes a big part out of your time, then that time is coming out of your family time. So these big blocks of times, is, I think it's an impediment for our younger learners. You know, helping people, you know, mentioned uh, if you're starting something new or learning something new, a book is the most logical place to start or maybe the only place that comes to mind with all your own personal wide range of content and books and lectures available. What would you recommend direct people to explore first of, of your materials in particular? That's a tough question because it depends on, on the way they learn. And uh, so now I've been teaching 20 years in the university. Uh, first University of Houston and, and now uh, at University of Oklahoma. And then 45 years ago, I was teaching at Columbia University in New York. And the way people learn today is, is totally different. They really don't want to know the theory unless it's important. So today's learners like to do things first, then if they find it interesting, then they'll go in, they'll invest the time in learning the theory. But let's do it first, see if it has any value. So it's backwards from the way people my age learned 45 years ago, where you learned the theory first, and then way, way down the road, you'd start applying the theory, maybe in, in a thesis or a dissertation or in a work environment. Uh, and there's a lot of theory like Z transforms that I never used. Uh, and I said, well, well, that was interesting. Why am I teaching people Z transforms if I've never used it? So I'm going to break this question into kind of two segments here. So what, what do you think right now is most important for geophysicists, let's say, in your cohort and these emerging professionals, as you mentioned, to focus on right now in this pandemic time and the low cost of oil right now, what what should they be focusing on? 
Well, first of all, they need to keep their skills up to date. They need to broaden the skills. And they need, uh, even though we're the geophysical society, we need to learn how geophysics impacts our sister professions, obviously geology and obviously uh, petroleum engineering, including drilling and production, completion processes, uh, if you're in the shale resource place. So we need to learn more than seismic processing and uh, seismic interpretation. We need to know how our technologies are, are being used. So if you're a geophysicist uh, in the future, we need to be uh, much more general than in the past. In the past, you could have been a seismic processor and worked 20 to 40 years as a seismic processor. Uh, and today, they're, they're still seismic processors and they're still very talented. I would suspect that outside of the service companies, it's less than 5% of the employment opportunities. Most of the employment opportunities are in data integration, the conventional way, working with people in teams. And then, of course, the a more modern twist where we're doing the data analytics and the machine learning and the artificial intelligence and those things. So whether you go the, the people uh, interaction part and develop your personal skills or the machine learning part and improve your computer skills, you need to broaden your skills in terms of data integration. So how, how might one put together an effective online course given some of the limitations and parameters you've discussed so far? So there's, there's several challenges. I've done voiced over PowerPoints for my student lectures, particularly near holidays. Now, the problem with a voiced over PowerPoint, wow, does that get really boring after a long time? Especially if you, you could, because you don't have an audience there, it's hard to get enthusiastic. It's hard to get pumped up. It's hard to antagonize people. You do need to speak a little slower when you record. Well, and that can make it more, more sleepy. The trick is there is some new technology. I'm going to try this Camtasia software and uh, that allows you, you know, to have your face in the corner. You can arm wave as I'm doing on Zoom with you right now. You can cut out a PowerPoint when you do your introduction and just have a picture of yourself talking like you normally would. And that adds a certain personal touch to a presentation. But then the, the way I've taught courses at the university is, in fact, all the classes I've taught have all had a hands-on component. So I would say today's learners like to do things first and then learn the theory. So if I do seismic modeling, they're going to run seismic models doing uh, using Tessero software with finite difference wave equations and so forth. And then we'll learn the theory of what a head wave is and what diffractions are, what guided waves are, etc. Once you can see them and generate them yourself, well, now you're a little more interested. With seismic processing, let's start with a 3D data volume 
and let's go sort the data and let's go generate different gathers, common midpoint, common offset, common receiver, as well as the original uh, survey orientation. Once you see the data, now it starts to, okay, I'm willing to learn how normal move out works. I'm more willing to learn how velocity analysis works because I'm seeing the data and I can imagine what's going to happen to it. So as we go forward, I know some of my uh, co-instructors, not, not teaching with me, but teaching other classes, Sid Mishra, he's going to use uh, Python. Python's a common programming language. It's on almost everybody's PC. And there's a lot of uh, free software to do machine learning. So he's going to be using that as, as a tool. Others who are doing seismic processing are putting together exercises using uh, MATLAB. And MATLAB is uh, ubiquitous in the university world uh, so that people can actually apply ideas and test ideas instead of just learning about it. Now, the area that I work on on seismic interpretation has two challenges. One is... There is a limited amount of publicly available 3D seismic data volumes. Fortunately, uh, several countries have opened this up, uh, New Zealand, Norway, a few others. So there are now good 3D, reasonably modern 3D data sets that participants or students uh, can play with and analyze. The other challenge is the software to use. So there are probably six to 10 really good seismic interpretation software packages. Uh, they range from on the high-end Landmark, Voxel Geo, Petrel, uh, to more affordable software used by small independent oil companies uh, like uh, Kingdom Suite, Geo Modeling, Etc. And I don't want to leave out any, you know, I don't want to leave out Foster Findlay and Open Detect and I'll go down the line. There's a whole bunch of people, PaleoScan, doing real good either niche work or, uh, or a full interpretation software package. Now, in a, in a short course, you're not going to have licenses to all of that. I've only had two times where I had licenses to, for a public domain class where I had licenses to commercial software to conduct a short course. So it's, it's, just, it's just difficult logistically. And so what, uh, what we're going to do with the, uh, the online version or the distance learning version of the attribute class at Oklahoma University and with some uh, sister universities, we put together a package of software with a, under a consortium with currently about 22 sponsors. And it's state-of-the-art attribute software. It's not state-of-the-art 3D seismic interpretation software by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but it is state-of-the-art attribute software. So the, the plan is to provide participants a license to the software that'll run one to three months. They'll do the class with the lectures, maybe a month or so, with the exercises, with data that we'll provide, public domain data that we'll provide as part of the class. 
But then uh, they'll be able to apply the same software to their own data that they're familiar with that they can't bring to a public class and determine for themselves whether this is nice, this is good, or this is useless, depending on the quality of their data or the geology that they're looking at. So that's what we can do with distance that we can't do in a confined time frame in person class. So you've you've really lived this idea of of working with other societies. You served as the initial editor of AAPG and SEG SEG's joint publication interpretation. I'm wondering what what is something you learned with working with geologists and and AAPG that you applied with your geophysics hat that you would not have learned otherwise? Well, there's there's a lot that I know, not that I've learned. I've learned what the geologists do and what interpreters do that myself as attribute boy or as a, a neophyte in machine learning find uh, quite challenging to replicate. So uh, if you were to ask me what's the most difficult task that I see right now in, in my area of research, it's trying to quantify what an interpreter is thinking when they identify a particular feature or even a horizon or a fault. Uh, and so this is an interdisciplinary area, and I call it the geopsychology. So what is an interpreter thinking when they identify a feature, let's say, as a gas hydrate? Okay, so one of, one of our students is working on gas hydrates, and I, and I asked them, well, Oh, and he wants to use attributes to help with gas hydrates. He wants to use machine learning. And I asked him, well, how do you know that's a gas hydrate? And he had to really go back and think and think and think. He really couldn't describe it, but I could see what he was looking at. He was looking at kind of a feature that's overprinted on conventional geology. And for those of uh, you listening to this uh, podcast, the gas hydrates are commonly called bottom simulating reflectors. So the, uh, the pressure and temperature regime below the ocean bottom tends to, to mimic the depth of the ocean bottom. So you'll have a reflector parallel to the ocean bottom, but the other geology may be going in totally different directions. Now that you've understood that, Okay, how do we teach a machine to do that? Or how do we uh, develop an algorithm or a processing workflow that pulls that out? And that's, that's pretty darn difficult. So there's, there's a lot of things like that. One that we learned from Henry Postman Tier, who has, uh, he goes on the road quite a bit. And he's a geologist who I think of as the, uh, Prince of geomorphology. And one of his major themes today, if you have a chance to attend one of his classes, is the concept of in context seismic interpretation. And that means 
you you keep the geology the geological setting in the back of your mind as you make the interpretation. So I'll give an example for for those of uh, you listening who are into attributes and into machine learning. If we uh, think of a a collapse feature, so karsting, there are direct measures of karsting, you know, chaotic reflectors, maybe lower frequency, maybe a structural low, a bowl-shaped feature. But there are also other indicators deeper down, maybe drop down 200, 400 milliseconds. And very commonly, there's a break in an otherwise what should be a continuous reflector. So there's a disruption because the velocities are different in that uh, collapse feature. And that's a hint that that's a, uh, a collapse feature. The fact that something nowhere near it is broken is an indication that you have a collapse feature in the shallower section. And we see this over and over again with, uh, let's say, differentiating a carbonate buildup, which will have velocity pull-up underneath it in many areas, versus a volcanic uh, cone, which doesn't have any reflectors underneath it and won't have a pulled-up event below the cone of the reflector. So by understanding that, oh, a, a reef is built on top of a sedimentary stack, so I can have velocity pull up, and a volcano comes up as a cone with a dike coming up and doesn't necessarily have reflectors below, that allows you to differentiate those two based on a pattern that is pretty large scale, like the whole seismic section scale. You know, given your long and varied career, what one piece of advice, boiling it down to one, is difficult, but what one piece of advice would you offer someone that would like to succeed in your field? The one, uh, the one advice I would give is continue to learn, to learn skills. And today, quantitative skills are more valuable than, let's say, softer skills like picking a horizon, picking faults, and so forth. Instead, uh, folks who have done well, that I've noticed have done well in my career, are people who can uh, do petrophysical analysis, uh, preconditioned seismic data for inversion, for pre-stack inversion, uh, do geostatistics, uh, do uh, their own interpretation of uh, image logs and looking for fractures on image logs, people who can correlate these, uh, let's say the number of fractures with seismic measurements, uh, attributes, uh, impedances, Poisson's ratio, using some statistical technique. Uh, the statistical technique could be cross-plotting in Excel. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, using programs like R, so just the letter R, that's a common statistics program, or some of the more sophisticated machine learning techniques. So those quantitative skills are really important. And then just as important, which does require people skills, is understanding what our customers are after. And in, a, in an oil company, the customers, the people with the money are going to be the engineers. So we have to understand what 
What are the engineers after? How can we communicate with them effectively? Uh, and and that's, that's, that's tough. That takes patience. Uh, it takes uh, a certain amount of uh, willingness to change the way that we think of things. We tend to think of things as with a whole lot of theory based behind it. And the engineers tend to be much more pragmatic, much more worried about efficiency and cost effectiveness than what theoretically would be better. So we've got to learn those, those two things, to be more quantitative and then to be able to communicate to whoever our customers are. I'll finish with these two questions. I'm sure a lot of people are, are interested in this. What current projects are you working on right now? Well, the main project I'm working on is putting together this short course and then putting together uh, a book with my buddy Chopra. He's the lead author. So we wrote a book in 2007 and it's 13 years. A whole lot has happened in 13 years. Then in terms of research, well, everybody is doing this machine learning stuff. So guess what? I'm doing machine learning too. And uh, what our team is doing here at uh, University of Oklahoma, but in conjunction with uh, Bo Zhang at uh, University of Alabama, the place with the good football team, uh, with uh, Sumit Verma at University of Texas Permian Basin, uh, with Sujavit uh, Bhattacharya up at University of Alaska. So we've got several of us working together on this project, along with Heather Bedell here at uh, University of Oklahoma. And uh, it's basically we're trying to put together all of the machine learning algorithms in one package so that an interpreter can compare and contrast. In other words, if they have a data volume and they want to do seismic uh, facies recognition, well, let's just go through them all. Let's do k-means, let's do principal component analysis, independent component analysis, self-organizing maps, generative topological maps, Gaussian mixture models, and the litany The litany continues with uh, random forest decision trees and support vector machines, et cetera. And to a normal person, including me, uh, the amount of choices makes your head spin. And if you go to any specific uh, company or software vendor, they tend to push just one, the one they think is best. So our goal is to, to kind of develop a package where they won't be the most efficient, but they will all be comparable. We'll have the same kind of graphics, the same input, produce the same objective result. And then the interpreter can kind of figure out, well, for my data, maybe I want to try this approach, and then they'll go with that appropriate uh, commercial vendor. Well, you are a very busy man, and I appreciate your time today. We'll we'll wrap up on this this one question here: that if you could solve one mystery as a geoscientist, what would you solve? That is a tough question. I would say I would say the unsolved mystery is geopsychology. How is an interpreter? How does a human interpreter come up and identify features of geologic interest? 
And is there a way we can bottle that and allow new interpreters to drink it or alternatively mimic it with some kind of machine learning or even a calibrated workflow? But it's really difficult to, to figure out how, a, how a, a skilled interpreter does their job. Well, that sounds like a great frontier to, to work on for someone, maybe yourself. And uh, stay safe out there and uh, enjoy that vast property you have before you. Yeah. Yep. Got cows on it and everything. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kurt. All right. Be good, Andrew. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast. Please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this episode. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. Go to our website at seg.org forward slash podcast to find all our episodes and learn how you can listen to this podcast directly on your phone without downloading an app. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Crockett, Allie McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.